In July 2021, American news outlet NPR came out with a story about the discovery of a new tunnel that seemed linked to Chinese nuclear testing, based on satellite image analysis. Behind the finding was a small company specialized in this kind of work, All Source Analysis. My guest today is René Babiaritz, their VP of Analysis and a former analyst for the NGA, the United States National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Yeah, I've done a lot of work researching uh, nuclear weapons in general, and uh, in particular, China's nuclear weapons program. But merely taking satellite images isn't enough to understand what's going on. Well, how do we know that China's doing anything different with its nuclear program just because you found this? Yeah. And I can't really answer that. I mean, I can, but not just from that analysis. But the good thing about the new finding is that it's very concrete. You can't deny that it's there. And if you do the analysis right, it's clearly related to nuclear weapons. However, getting the analysis right isn't the only important aspect of this work. Different words mean different things, and you want to make sure that you're very careful making it clear just how certain you are about what you're saying. Before we get started with the interview, I want to thank today's sponsor, which is OpenCage. If you work with addresses and location data, chances are you're going to need a geocoder. Geocoding is the act of translating coordinates, so think latitude and longitude, that are created by smartphones and tracking devices into human understandable places, like street names and place names, or the other way around. So OpenCage provides a geocoding API, which is built on top of open data sources, one of them being OpenStreetMap. This allows them to provide their geocoding API at a pretty low cost, as well as having pretty loose licensing terms compared to proprietary platforms. So you can do things like store the data as long as you want, display it on any map, and use it publicly or behind a firewall. So if it's built on top of open data sources, you may be wondering, like, why wouldn't you be able to do it yourself? Well, you can totally make your own geocoder, but what OpenCage provides is just a simple API that works, that is reliable, basically they take care of all the maintenance. For example, OpenStreetMap alone gets edited four to five million times a day. On top of that, OpenCage provides information like local time zones, what currency people use, and which phone code is used. Because OpenCage is based around open data, that means their pricing is also pretty affordable. And they have a pretty generous free trial that I encourage you to go take a look, especially if you're just playing around or are doing a personal project. Finally, which is pretty close to my heart, they've been long supporters of the open source community and just geospatial community as a whole. So if this sounds interesting, you can go to the link in the description to see more about them. I like starting these conversations with the same question every single time. I like asking people how they would describe themselves. So I'm quite curious, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as someone who loves to find new things. And that can be walking around in a new place and seeing new things. That can be researching something and finding something new that maybe other people haven't found before. Um, and most recently, it's finding answers to difficult problems, trying to solve difficult problems. Um, and so that's really what gets me the most excited. That's what I, when I wake up in the morning, that's what I think about first in wanting to do for the day. So given that, how do you end up working on, like, let's dive right in. How do you end up working on geo-intelligence stuff? Like, those are, you know, problems that... Um, difficult problems that don't always have an answer. But there's 
so many different things that have difficult problems yeah, that yeah. don't have an answer. How did you decide that's the, or how did you end up just uh, working on those kinds of problems? Well, I should say, you know, my answer to the previous question is really partially working backwards from the work right. that I do now in part, because I love the work that I do now so, so much. Um, but how did I get involved in the industry was pretty much by accident. I was a graduate student and I received a certain government fellowship. It's called a Boren Fellowship, and the U.S. government gives it. And there's a service requirement, a U.S. government service requirement as part of that fellowship. And when I finished the fellowship, it was to study the Chinese language. When I finished that, I had to apply to any place in the federal government and work there for at least one year to pay back the fellowship. Uh, and so I applied everywhere and I got a response from one particular agency. It's a place called the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency or NGA. I'll refer to them as NGA from now on and, uh, got an interview and, and then I started working there and that, that introduced me to the world of geospatial data and information. Um, and so, you know, maybe at the top, it would be good to say, you know, geospatial data means any information that has latitude and longitude connected to it. Right. Now, that includes satellite imagery, but it also includes all kinds of other data like cell phone data um, and, and many other kinds of data. And so, you know, now I'm used to working with many forms of data, but I started as a satellite imagery analyst um, and I still do that quite a bit. And that's some of the work that I love the most. So, so let me just, I want to put some context Around when are we talking about? Like you, you enter sure. the NGA. When is that? Uh, that was 2010. Okay. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is you get a fellowship. That's is it? Did you choose the topic of studying like Chinese? Yes. So okay. I've been studying China and Chinese language for a long time. I okay. was in graduate school, continuing to do that, and I was in a political science program at Johns right. Hopkins University as part of that, um, working on my PhD. And so I applied for this fellowship so I could go and study Chinese to do research, uh, Chinese language research. Um, was that, so you said political studies, is that, was there any specific topic? And so I'm, I'm asking all these questions so that, you know, these will, will kind of explain later on the sure. work you're doing, but I, I really want to understand like the genesis, like where it kind of started. Yeah. Is it, like, can you tell me, like, where does the, even the interest for, for the Chinese language and political science sure. starts? Sure. That, that, great questions. Um, and that all started w with my undergraduate schooling. Uh, so I was an undergraduate student at a college called St. Mary's College. And I started taking Chinese language classes and loved it, um, in addition to philosophy classes. So I, I studied philosophy, and that was my major as an undergraduate. And got into Asian studies and Chinese studies that way and started doing language, loved it. As soon as I graduated from St. Mary's, I went and lived in China for a year and taught English. Okay. Uh, went to Shanghai, went to Fudan Dashui. And it was um, very, it was transformative. And that that just deepened my my love of studying Chinese language and being in Asia, loving being in China and continuing to, to find new things. Right. Is that what then catches the interest of the, the NGA? Like that knowledge is, is what gets you in the door? So 
for NGA, they were interested they, in anybody who was applying who had some academic background at that time. And so it could be a academic background anywhere. I happen to have academic background as a, as a graduate student in social sciences, so political science, right. and China. But there were, they were hiring people with back, all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, so, so everything from science to social science like myself. Um, and everything in between. So I'm I'm sure that they liked that, but I think they they wanted to just see, um, and I see if I would work there and see see if it would work for me to be there. And then also, I had a special service requirement with the fellowship that made it easier for them to hire me. Actually, because it's actually very difficult to just knock on the door of the federal government and ask for a job. I mean, you can do that, the proverbial door, um, but it's quite challenging to get an opportunity. The fact that I had this fellowship made it easier for them to hire me. And that I think really helped to get me into the door. Right. And so you said you become a, uh, geospatial intelligence analyst. That sounds like completely different, totally uh, different, <laughs> totally different. So I, I sat in my first interview with NGA and they said, so have you, have you ever heard of NGA before? And I said, no. Do you know what satellites are? Kind of, but I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't even really know anything about satellite imagery at that time. So I was in my, you know, what, early to mid-30s. So this was a mid-career opportunity and change for me at the time. Right. And uh, so totally new. I had no background and made it clear in my interviews with NGA that I had no idea what I was getting into. Right. But it, it I mean, I'm, I could imagine like, when you start hearing that, it sounds like a difficult problem requiring answers to get back to what you were talking. Exactly. Yeah, it was fascinating. And so I said, sure. And I had to, I had to fulfill my service requirement. Right. And so they gave me an opportunity. I said, I'll, I'll try it. Why not? I think being open-minded and flexible and, as you were saying, you know, enjoying finding new things and new problems helped me to adapt. And then I just happened to love the work when I started it. Right. So you spend a few years there. You probably learn a lot on the job directly. What happens after that? Sure. So I, I received a you know formal training and then formal experience doing work, and then I left and um, my family. So I I have a big family, and we wanted to take our kids and move to a different part of the world. Move, and we got an opportunity to move to Asia. So right. I left government. We moved overseas again. And uh, we we did we had that adventure for a few years. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of work, but also a lot of fun. And that was um, we found out a lot about ourselves in moving right. our whole family overseas to. Where to do did that. you end up? Uh, we went to Macau, China. Okay. Uh, so it was uh, very interesting. Quite different, even from Hong Kong. I can imagine. Yeah. And so you're still you're like on track to like you're staying in the satellite imagery industry so i was yeah i still was doing that um but then you know that became a little that was part-time at the time after i left government but still kept working at it on the side and then so sorry into, what is that part-time job work that you're doing at that time uh so that was a mix of consulting uh with um some nonprofit organizations okay 
and then also getting involved with all source analysis. Right. Um, first part time and then full time. And that company who I currently work for now has opportunities for people to work constantly in remote positions. Right. And so there's actually very little office time, uh, face-to-face office time for people that work in that company. Most of all the work that's done is totally decentralized. And so that's how I was able to be in another part of the world, but work for, still, still work in that industry. Is that still the case today, actually? Yes, it's still totally remote. All the work right. that I do is is remote. Uh, and in fact, I've, I've, I've actually met the people that I work with on a regular basis just a handful of times right. yeah. over, over the many years we've been working together. So let's dive into AllSource. Um, I'd like to, you know, a little bit the same as I asked you at the beginning to describe it, the, describe the, the company, the work you do. But let's, let's start really high level. Like you're, sure. you're at Thanksgiving dinner yeah. and, you know, an uncle you haven't seen in a while asks you what you're doing. Like, how do you start describing it at a really high level? And then we can, you know, peel the layers and dive a little bit deeper in. Sure. Uh, so the work that we do, so at AllSource Analysis, we are a geospatial analysis services company. So that's different from a company that provides geospatial data. So, for example, there's a company called ISI that provides radar data to customers. They have data, the customers purchase it. That's how they make money. At AllSource, we provide analysis as a service Right. for customers. So that means as a company, we take that data, analyze it for customers to answer the questions that they have that they want answered, and then provide a product that gives them analysis on the questions that they want answered. So we're an intermediary. We're in between data and the customers que- answering the customer's questions. Right. And so, you know, don't know how much detail we can go in, but can you, do you have examples of what kind of questions? Because the geospatial world of satellite imagery, there's a billion questions that you can answer again with that. Can you kind of narrow that scope a little bit down? Sure, sure. I, uh, I absolutely can. So for example, let's say that there's a, a mining company that wants to monitor its mines in a certain part of the world. Like let's say that there's a mining company that has mines in Brazil. And these are just random examples. Um, And let's say they've got 20 mines and they want to make sure that the mines remain operational to a certain level, um, that uh, the development that they're paying for at the mine is actually being carried out. Um, And so they might hire a company like AllSource, hire AllSource to monitor open source data. And I should say all the work that we do is open source Okay. It's proprietary, meaning it's commercial. So, for example, ISI provides open source data and people can purchase it, but that doesn't mean it's just freely available online. You have to actually go to the company, purchase it. And then once you purchase it, there are certain company-based rights of things that you can do with the data and things that you can't do with the data. That's proprietary. So it's open, but owned by a company proprietary. So we work with proprietary data. It's not classified in any way. We would work with that data in the mining example and monitor the mines right. to make sure, yes, we're answering what the customer wants. 
And we might make reports about that, have meetings with the customer to say, this is what we've observed, um, things like that. So I want to I wanna linger on that uh, open and proprietary. In a few contexts, those things are actually opposed. It's yes. either you have open... For software, for example, you have open source software or proprietary software. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Very good question. This this actually really helps to sharpen how I talk about these things. So right. I, yeah, I think that this is great. Um, so because the word intelligence is associated with geospatial, I mean, at the very beginning of this talk, you said geospatial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I, I teach for a program that's a geospatial intelligence program. Right. Well, the word intelligence refers to... Um, you know, uh, national security organizations that secretly do things and have secret data that's classified as secret and not public. Uh, And you, you know, to work with it, you have to go through all these background checks, and then you are only allowed to work with that data in a specific place and location. It's marked secret or top secret or something like that. Um, The opposite of that is open source data, meaning it's not in any way part of that national security classified world. The government does not own it. No government owns it. Um, But a company might own it. So when I say open source, you're right. It it doesn't refer to the general meaning of open source, like open source software. It's totally public crowdsource contributions to developing it, things like that. Um, I mean, not classified. Right. So your average person can show their credit card and buy it. And buy it. Right. Exactly. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to come back. You're not talking about it's a completely permissionless thing where you can just send an API request and you, you get it without paying yep. or without... Um, okay. Exactly. And in fact, many data companies actually have tiered services for their products, meaning you could buy it, but you're still not allowed to publish it openly right. unless you pay a little more, like a media license or right. something like that. And so, okay, that's actually quite interesting that the... That use of the word open is kind of it depends on where you put the closed uh, exactly exactly and and it's how i've come to use it yeah because of my background in the different communities that i have worked in and continue to in some ways be a part of i want to make sure that when um, people talk to me about a subject like this and we may get into some subjects like some of my academic research in the past that sound really sensitive and are related to national security issues that's why I want to make clear the information is open, openly available. Right. It's open source. It's not in any way classified by any government. Got it. Okay. So all the, again, uh, I want to rephrase, make sure I understand all the data, all the information you work with, anybody can buy it. Like that's, that's where we start. Um, and so on the, on the, on the publishing side, um, I've, I've looked around and, you guys publish some of the analysis that you've done. I'm guessing not everything, but where does like how does the decision making end up on that side? I'm sure if you're a mining company, you probably don't want everybody uh, taking a look at you know your mining capabilities and things like that. But I'm sure there's other other analysis, and and there seem to be at least from from what I've seen a lot of. Um, like OSINT, open source intelligence uh, about what's going on in China, for example, that is things that that it seems like you guys have published kind of on Twitter, for example. So can you kind of walk me through what are the different um, scenarios? Sure, sure. 
uh, I'll do my best. Sure. And you can yeah. keep asking me my clarifying questions. Uh, so most of the time as a company, when we make decisions about what to do with the analysis that we've done, if a customer has paid us to do the work, we listen to the customer and what they want us to do with the mm-hmm. information. And most customers, as you suggested, don't want us to just openly publish work that they've they've purchased. Yeah. And it could be for any reason. It could be just because it's business proprietary information to them and they don't want their competitors to get it. Um, it could be just they would rather not have it be well known that they're hiring outside ser- services, outside firms to do this work for whatever reason. Most companies that we work with actually don't want us to publicly yeah, that makes release what they've purchased. Um, and so we listen to the customer first. However, we're always as a company doing background research where we that we can publish, that we are allowed to sometimes publish. Uh, so, for example, I do side work with AllSource and with AllSource data to just research things that I'm interested in. And that can help drive business with the company. Yeah. And it, or it could be something that I produce in an academic setting or write a book about. So, for example, the book that I've written is based in part on work that I've, I've done with AllSource and AllSource data, but on the side. No customer has paid for it. Got it's it. just my personal interest in in doing that work and that I'm allowed to uh, publish and and put out as long as I get all the right permissions if, if I'm showing data and things like that uh, but um, that is more of a personal research ap- approach or objective on my part right um, and all of the analysts that we have in our company they do the same thing. They've got their own personal research, things that they're interested in. They get to use some of the data at AllSource to do that research. They love doing that. Um, And then they're able to, as long as everybody agrees and they're open about it with us, uh, sometimes publicly put things out about the work that they're doing. Got it. Okay. So it's it's kind of annex work a little bit. The the, the thing that this makes me think of and and, and let me know if that sounds like a good analogy is in, you know, if software engineers are working on a specific project, a lot of software engineers also have just side projects yes. they're working on an open source library or mm-hmm. something like that. And so that is just translating those skills, but applied to something that isn't under the the umbrella of the contracts of the company. Yes, very much. It's, it's just like that. And okay. you called it annex work. Yeah. As in, what does that mean? Is that is it? Uh, it's like, on the side. Yeah. 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 Maybe okay. it's not the right use of. No, that. I think it is. I just haven't heard it, so I right. wanted to ask. It's just the first word that came to mind. Yeah. So it's just like that. It's just <laughs> like it. that, and it's applying things that you may be doing in other places, maybe for customers, but you're just applying right. it in a different way, and in your way, and maybe finding new things and different things as you do it. Okay. So I, I want to. I'd love to bring up a few examples of of what that might look like. Mm-hmm. If you have, I don't know, some of the recent work that you might have sure. worked on. Yeah, sure. So, uh, for example, yeah, I've done a lot of work researching uh, nuclear weapons in general, and uh, in particular, China's nuclear weapons program. So right. as, a, as an academic with Johns Hopkins in my PhD work, my PhD was about China's nuclear weapons program, the history of that program. And that's 
was published openly. So I published a dissertation that's available in the library. It's available online. Right. Anybody can download it. Uh, and then I published an academic article, a peer-reviewed article on some of that work later. That's open. Any, well, again, we get to open versus not open. Yeah. You need to have a subscription to the journal, but... Uh, but allegedly. Any, <laughs> allegedly, yes. Uh, um, but anybody can access that. Um, so I've continued to do some of that research on the side. And some of that research led to uh, new discoveries in the last couple of years. And I was able to put out some of those discoveries online uh, and through um, a media organization. And so um, that's that's one example. So for example, with um, National Public Radio, NPR, we put out a story on a new underground facility at Lopnor Nuclear Weapons Testing Ground in China. So that was based on research that I did. I found it and we connected it to the that finding to the, the Lopnor Nuclear Weapons Testing Ground overall. And that's a that's a purely geospatial analysis result, meaning it was the result of careful geospatial analysis that led us to be able to take that discovery of this new location and relate it to the nuclear weapons testing ground, which immediately characterizes that new discovery as associated with nuclear weapons testing. And that's a that's a pure geospatial analysis problem. Um, so that's one example of this side research. And by the way, to, to release that, you know, I made sure I told everybody at AllSource, this is what's going on. This is what I'd like to do. Uh, and then we cleared it with the, the satellite imagery company that we used. Um, so plan, in this case, Planet, I made sure to clear everything with them beforehand and not just release it on, on Twitter or something without any of those um, permissions. That that that's I, I want to. I'm glad that you brought this one on. I was I was going to talk about that. Um, I want to dive a bit deeper into that, and let's start with that last comment. It's first of all quite the fun hobby to decide you're going to spend some time trying to figure out the nuclear strategy of China. I mean, it's you know, it, there's not it's not the same implications as just you're going to make an Arduino that controls the temperature in your house. Right. Right. Um, but you you mentioned that like th the importance of working with all the parties and not just, hey, this is open, let's just publish it and kind right. of see what happens. So first of all, why is that important? Uh, that's a great question. And that is important because in the current position that I have with AllSource, I work with a lot of these companies and I, and I work with other people at AllSource. And so I'm, I'm part of a, a web of, of people who are and organizations that are all working together and all doing side work at the same time, but still working together. And so in the interest of making sure that I don't um, harm anybody's interests, you know, that I don't step on another organization or um, make another organization upset that we use data that they, we didn't ask if we could use, the, we come back to that proprietary issue, right, with data ownership. Um, and I think that that's an important one to come back to because when it comes to doing research like this, you mentioned doing research on China's nuclear strategy. I actually don't do a lot of research right now on nuclear strategy. It's more geospatial analysis of nuclear locations, nuclear okay, facility okay. locations. And that, that's, a, that's a clear and important distinction because it's location-based analysis. 
And so right. your your question about anything that I bring up related to this could easily be, well, how do we know that China is doing anything different with its nuclear program just because you found this? Yeah. And I can't really answer that right now. Um, I mean, I can, but <laughs> not just from that analysis. Sure. Uh, it's just a new finding. Yeah. But the good thing about the new finding is that it's very concrete. You can't deny that it's there. And if you do the analysis right, it's clearly related to nuclear weapons. And so this is the power of location-based analysis. This is the power of geospatial analysis, that you don't have to say, well, I think the Chinese government is going to do this next week, this action next week. You can't really answer that. But you can say, we've got a location right here, and it's new, and it's related to nuclear weapons, and here's the analysis. Um, and as long as we get all the permissions so that we make sure that we can maintain our, our healthy relationships with other people and other organizations in the geospatial industry, we can sometimes put out things like that. Um, but, but those relationships really, now I'll come back around to answering your question now at, um, in, in full circle, I hope. Relationships between people and organizations in this space are, every, are everything. And so if you make decisions that you know adversely affect those relationships you can lose access to data you can lose access to other opportunities and so it's important to try and work together and build something positive and not not just try to do something to to get a lot of attention that could actually burn you in the long run or or, or adversely affect you in the long run yeah yeah I because there's going to be a next story. That's right. It's... That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. So there's, I, I again, I, I find this really fascinating and I have more questions about how does a project like that get started? How do you... A project like what? Like, uh, again, the, the one where you found... Yes. It yes. looks okay. like there's a new tunnel in mm. this specific location in China. We can relate that to nuclear weapons how does yeah how does a story like that get started great question and uh i in the book i don't address the origin story per se but the book does describe the textbook that i'll be putting out in uh, that, that will be published in the next two months or so does talk about how things like that start and how this particular project started and it was simply doing a broad area search of and of a satellite image in the Lopnor area, but somewhat away from well-known parts of the Lopnor nuclear weapons testing ground. And I'll just say right at the top, uh, so testing locations, testing facilities for nuclear weapons are well-known publicly because of nuclear weapons treaties over the decades, since the 1960s, really. A series of treaties have made certain parts of most nuclear powers weapons program open. So testing areas especially are um, well-known locations. They're written down in treaty documents so that the two or different countries, either two countries or multilateral, mul multiple countries, can monitor each other's testing activities to make sure that they are abiding by the terms of a certain treaty. Uh, so this is something that Jeffrey Lewis, who, who you've had on the podcast um, previously has studied a lot 
and knows a lot about the treaty process. Um, well, Lopnor nuclear weapons testing area or testing ground is well characterized in treaty uh, negotiations and treaty publications. Um, and so it's, it's an area that most people know about and that I, I was already interested in and studying a little bit. So that's, that's where that comes from. But it, I was looking at satellite imagery of a location nearby that, still kind of within the area, nearby, but not... What is nearby? Did you have... So the, the, the area is a very large area, and there are well-known locations in the nuclear weapons test right. testing ground. Um, but let's say, you know, it's tens of thousands of square kilometers. Most of the well-known locations are, say, on the western side of that area. There's nothing in the east. Um, and I was looking at satellite imagery of areas in the east, just close by, but there's nothing here, there's nothing here. And then, boop, one day I happened to find something. And so what drives that? Well, it was, I'm looking at new satellite imagery that's come in. I'm just doing a broad area search, meaning you're just looking at the whole satellite image syst systematically from the from that's, the top all that's the way visually down. that's visually like open just, it up on your yep. desktop with something like qgis yes doesn't really matter here yep. but you're panning around mm -hmm. looking for anything yes and you know that area i'm guessing you've seen uh, it before probably yeah you and you think you know the area <laughs> but then there's always something that surprises you Got and it. that comes back to the very first question you asked of you know what is it that you really enjoy doing well it's finding new things and that's a way of finding something that um, I now I know how to do, and I, I love doing it. And when you find something new, whether it's something related to nuclear weapons or not, just something yeah, new that yeah. you didn't know was there, it's very interesting to try and understand what it is that you found. And then just that process of, it looks like there's something new here. What is it? And it starts visually with careful observations. Then if you think it's interesting enough, you more deeply analyze it. And that means you think about it more, you bring in other kinds of information, you try to understand its meaning beyond the, you know, the initial observation. And then if you think it's really important and interesting enough, you want to communicate it to somebody else, whether it's your friend and you take a screenshot and say, hey, don't, don't send this out, but take a look at this, what do you think? Or all the way up to a media organization to communicate it to the public if you think it's important enough and interesting enough uh, and you're, you've gotten all your permissions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, again, I, I do this a lot. I just want to make sure I understand yeah. and the, the process. So there's specific areas of interest that you know about that are open because of some of these uh, nuclear treaties. Yes. Um, and so do you, have an agreement with satellite image providers that, hey, every time there's an image here, just send us over and we'll take a look. Because again, the, the reason I was asking if you were manually looking at it is it sounds like it's an enormous amount of work. Like why check this image and not another one that comes maybe a week later? And then the next question is why not task every day around that area? Maybe I'm sure it costs a lot, but I want to understand a little bit that process of how did that image so there's there's these areas of interest how does that image land on your desktop in the first place yeah that's a very good question and i can just say generally speaking that 
uh, at AllSource, we have relationships with um, multiple data providers, including satellite imagery providers. And because we have that relationship, we are allowed as a company to look at that data. And usually as much as we want to. And in fact, I'll just say from my perspective at AllSource, most of the time, there's more data coming in than people can make sense of. And this is part of why the rise of, you know, artificial intelligence, AI. I'd love and, to get there. Yeah, computer vision is 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 so hot because with more and more companies bringing in more and more data, there's a finite or maybe diminishing number of people that can make sense of it and interpret it well. And so that's why there's generally freedom to do it. And if, you know, since we have good relationships with these companies, we have the freedom to be able to look and just do do interesting analysis and interesting work. Um, and if we think we find something, that's why we go and talk to the companies and say, hey, we, what do you think? We think we found this. Um, and that's why we, we're very careful about those relationships. I can imagine. We access the data. We don't, um, we don't task. It's usually just data that's coming in. Um, and because of that, it's a little bit of it. It's formal, but we're allowed to, as you said earlier, do annex work just to do research. And so we're very respectful of being able to access all that data to do that kind of research. Um, and in the end, sometimes that's not our personal company's data. We're doing it as part of a partnership. And that's how this worked. We were, I was just doing this work, doing, doing um, research on data that was coming in. And yes, it is a lot of work. Uh, but if you love it, it doesn't feel like a lot of work until you look up and six hours has passed on your on your. And I'm, I'm sure there's like a the sense of excitement. As Very well. exciting. Like it's like, Very wait a minute. Like, what hang is this? On, what is this? Yes, the yeah, heart yeah, beats faster. Yeah, yeah. Really, it, it is. So, yeah, let's talk about the the automation. And as you mentioned, I've talked to Jeffrey Lewis and we talked about that a little bit. And he was like, yes, we need more people who know how to how to yeah. use that. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that the same answer? Like, what's the how much automation are you trying to integrate and for a story like the one we've been talking about, mm -hmm. is it something where there, you know, we could have automation specifically because there's areas of interest and we're not at the moment talking about, we're going to check the entire globe planets talking about imaging the earth every day. Like that's a whole other story of checking everything. But when you have a few specific areas of interest, does, does automation make sense uh, or is it still just eyeballs on the screen? Uh, it's both. So great question. And it's one that is very hot in the industry right now. Uh, and I'll, I'll back up and say there are some who think that the idea of using um, computer vision is one phrase that's used for it. You know, AI or artificial intelligence or AI or machine learning, ML, um, applications to look through images and then send a message out to a person to say, hey, we think we found we think we found this, or maybe a robot voice, we think we found this. Um, so there are some people that think there's no place for that. It should only be people. It should only be humans. And if we develop these capabilities, then we won't need humans to do that anymore. And so there are some people in our industry who fear that and say, oh, this is going to replace the human. Um, and that's not my perspective. Uh, in fact, 
I don't see that happening anytime soon because you definitely need to have the human analytic ability to take multiple forms of data and interpret what's being observed. But AI ML applications can definitely help scan a large area and give humans an indication that maybe there's something else to look at. Like, oh, we found this new set of values in the data that was not there before. That's what they'll, they'll, that's what they're looking for. I mean, they're looking for numerical values that we interpret visually and make into a picture, but they're reading the numerical values of the data that's coming in from the satellite and saying, oh, there are new numerical values over here. I better tell, I better tell Rennie, I better tell Max, take a look over here. That can be extremely useful, but the human still has to go and look. And then if they think it is something that's new, that's important enough, now what? Now what? how do we interpret this? How do we make sense of this? And there's um, no AI ML application yet that can, in my experience, and we, we work with some of these, these tools that can make sense of that, of that data like a human can. Yeah. No, it's like a tool that just It's helps just a tool. F- filtering. Yes. Yeah. That makes yes. sense. Um, yeah, the thing that comes to mind is just change detection is never, right. I think that's maybe more in the, in the synthetic aperture radar world where there's a bunch of reasons why that's maybe a bit easier to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever heard it as this is going to replace completely. Right. It's just going to be, Hey, there's a change in frequency in the signal. Take a look. Take as, a look. As you mentioned. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we, we've actually did. So we have a public, um, um, contract that's been publicly released, uh, where we worked uh, at all source, we got a contract with NGA to do that kind of change detection monitoring over the course of a year on a countrywide level. So full countries, uh, military facilities using radar data, change detection applications applied to radar data. Um, op- in this case, it was truly open source radar data. Um, and then we had to come in and make sense of it and say, yep, this is change or no, this is, this is not change. So you still had to, it's called human in the loop. Yeah. Right. right? Um, I don't know. Uh, but you still have to have humans. Yes. As part of that process. Absolutely. Um, so that's on the, uh, that's on the like beginning of how the story starts and how you figure out. The other part that I really want to talk about is the the communication part. I've, I've heard you yeah. talk about in a previous talk, like how important that is, not just the finding, but how you share that yes. to the world. Yes. And so in this case, it was done with uh, NPR, National Public Radio. Radio yes. There we go. Uh, it's a big news organization, uh, media organization uh, in the U.S., What's the process of you, you? You talked about that. You alluded to if it's something big, you you might want to share it to the press. What's the the decision process about that? And then I'd love to talk about actually doing that and sharing and talking with journalists and sharing it to the public. Sure, uh, that's another great question. And I would say that the mode of communication affects how you communicate it. And so, if it's a conversation or an interview with a journalist. You know, in my case, I contacted the journalist said, hey, I think that this is important. Uh, you might want to run a story on this. Here's the information. And then in that case, I talked to the journalist. And then I also provided the journalist with background information that I had produced that I was allowed to release to, to him to say, Here, here's what we've, what we've found. So here's the, 
here's the backup information. Here's the information that supports what I'm saying. So you can take my interview, but then here's some background information to, to show you the evidence. Um, so that's one way of communicating. Um, but then really any form of communication that's going to be public in any way, you need to take very a, a great deal of care in the words that you use to describe what you're observing. Um, different words mean different things, and you want to make sure that you're very careful in in making in making it clear just how certain you are about what you're saying. Like um, that that gets into words like caveat or probability. Like we think this is. If you've ever heard a language like this, this is a probable truck. You're like, what is a probable truck? That doesn't make any sense. It's just a truck, or it's not a truck, right? Well, no. If you're le- if you're dealing with remote sensing data you will want to make it clear to your audience, this is what I think this is, and I'm going to show you a picture of it. But it's just three blue pixels. But it's just three blue, blue pixels, and here's my level of confidence in what I'm saying that it is. And if it's just three blue pixels, you might want to be really careful in trying to go public with that because one aspect of communication uh, that I, I think you're starting to allude to is... is how do people get convinced that what you're saying is right? Now, that's both the strength of satellite imagery and the weakness of satellite imagery. The strength is that people can relate to a picture very quickly. If I say, this is a truck, and it kind of looks like a truck from the top view, you say, yeah, yeah, that is a truck. I've just communicated something to you, an observation, and you now agree with it. That's quite powerful. I mean, that's a simple example, a truck. But if it's a truck at a nuclear weapons underground facility, I mean, you can just start piling on the different meanings there. Then it can become quite a big deal. Then it's more than just a truck. Um, But that's also the weakness of satellite imagery because it can sometimes too easily convince people of things because it's so easy to visually make sense of certain images, especially electro-optical images, you know, just, um, so you have to be very careful when you're communicating that you respect both. You respect the strength of it and not, you're not trying to trick people. I would say you have to be responsible and then account for the weakness, uh, which is if you're wrong and you've convinced people and you've done it in part because you're using this very convincing picture uh, then, you know, that's a problem. You don't want to do that. You shouldn't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to be presenting bad information, disinformation, which might be accidental or misinformation where you're intentionally misleading people. And there are lots of current examples of that. Uh, so one, one quick example is the new missile silo fields. I don't know if you talked with Jeffrey Lewis about this, but his organization, um, you know, the Middlebury Institute put out some publications about China's new missile silo fields in different parts of the country. There are now three major new ones. Um, and they did, they did some good work on that. Uh, well, at the time the first report came out, I think it was with Washington Post, I believe a prominent Chinese foreign service officer put out on Twitter a claim that those were not missile silo fields. In fact, they were windmills. China was building windmills. This was a wind farm, a wind generation farm. So 
that official's statement on Twitter would be an example of misinformation. Taking something that people might be able to see visually and say, well, that's not a missile silo field. That, that, they're building windmills there. Intentionally trying to mislead the public with that information. I, I can say intentionally because we, we also studied this. We had a customer that hired us to study that and actually test that exact claim to say, are these windmill fields or missile silos? And we did a full analysis and said, well, they're definitely not windmills. <laughs> and we think they're probably missile silos in accordance with you know, multiple other organizations as well. Uh, let me just interrupt you there. Um, can can we define mis and disinformation? Like real quick, it doesn't have to be very long, but you, you've alluded to it, but I, I want to bring back and really center that. Can we uh, go on those two? Things? Sure, sure, sure. Um, and in fact, you know, I actually hope that I'm not getting this backwards. <laughs> so you're asking me to define this and, um, we can, I, I'll, I'll make sure to double check after, but uh, point being, let's make sure to say there actually are two different two things. Different the, the, things. Intent, the intent matters. Yes. One is intentionally misleading. And I believe that that's misinformation intent. I think, um, <laughs> intentionally misleading someone or an organization with data. The other is disinformation. Well, the other is mistakenly making a claim. You think it's right at the time, but it's a, mis it's a mistake. And then other people perpetuating it. And that's more accidental. So yes, it's, you know, it's the issue of intent. What is it that people are trying to achieve with what they're doing? Either everyone's on the common search for truth and they simply made a mistake along the way. Or some people or organizations are not on the search for truth. They're, on the, they're trying to keep people from knowing certain things. And so they're trying to mislead the public about a certain event. Right. And so that's why the use of that language of being probable truck mm -hmm. of we think it's this is, is really important because it's communicating that the knowledge, that analytical knowledge that you have, that those three blue pixels, given everything else that we know, it should be a truck. Yes. It looks like a truck, yes. but kind of leaving some reserve to say, well, we can't know. It's only three blue pixels, for example. Exactly. That, that uncertainty, communicating that uncertainty clearly does two things. First, it's honest and transparent. And so you are making it clear that, you know, this, this is what I think I know in this moment. And so it's telling you something about, or it's telling the audience something about your intent. You're saying, okay, I, this I'm being as upfront based on all the information that I have. This is what I think. But it's also building trust with the audience because the audience then says, okay, well, they think they know this, but they're being a little careful. Uh, I, this, this could be a good source of information they're not overstating their claims and they don't appear to be misleading. And so that's why it's important. It helps to build a connection of trust and confidence. I'll say now a more general thing that probably is cliched, but at a time in our world where there's less and less trust because there's so much mis and disinformation out there. And I, I think that that's generally true. Um, so, yeah. I'm glad that you bring that up. That's the place I want to go to next uh, is... That language, that nuance is, it's hard. It's a, it's a difficult exercise. Um, and 
I'd love to, you know, go take this to the social media uh, conversation. So the, you work with journalists who are also people who are basically expert at communicating, at telling stories. And I feel like they probably would be able to take that nuance. But we also live in a world where people read headlines um, and social media have don't really work that well with nuance and you know even here we're having a long conversation we can explain things we can put caveats we can say well actually you know even that we're not really sure and we can detail and explain that doesn't really fit in a tweet yeah um, yeah so what's been your experience also sharing that with the outside world and, and once it's out in the open you can't really control what people are going to think about it, how people are going to share and quote, retweet it and, and, and things like that. Is that actually, like, is that really a problem? Is is that not? I'd, I'd love to just hear your experience on, on that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to say, uh, you know, I, I've actually been quite reserved in the world of social media precisely because of that, right. that problem that um, I actually am not, and have not been searching for social media attention on work that I do. I've actually been much more interested in just doing the work and doing really good work uh, and finding new things. Then if I do want to publicize something, I first will produce all the work that's required to do it. Uh, and only then will I start public publicizing it, like putting out a tweet or something like that. Right now, you know, everybody works differently and every organization works differently. At AllSource, you know, because of my role, I, I think a lot about what's right for my role at that at the company. And we are, since we're a geospatial analysis services company, people trusting the work that we do is more important than getting quick attention for something that we've done. Now, mm. we still do put out things for marketing purposes, but it's very deliberate. Yeah, it's on a specific cadence and it's very rarely based on a news cycle. Instead, we do our work and then once we've got the work, we'll put something out. Um, and that's that's very much my approach as well. And uh, I, I simply am not interested in being part of right. a daily, like a Twitter fight or Twitter publication on a regular basis based on a news cycle. I'd rather help to create a news cycle with very good work. So I'm on the nuance side. I'm on Got the it. side of doing deep work. And uh, I, maybe that's a personal decision. It's also part of my organizational role at all source and, and my background as an analyst. If you do a PhD, you spend years researching something and you, you know, so you're, you're used to taking that time to make sure you're getting things right. You're, you've got good sources. All of that is much more important. And I'll say that it comes into reputation uh, and the individual reputation of an analyst or a scholar or a researcher is much more important, in my opinion, than quick attention from uh, a news story during a news cycle or a Twitter post. Uh, and that reputation keeps coming back in the community of analysts that work together. They don't care at all about Twitter. I mean, it's fine if somebody puts something out on Twitter, but if it's if the analysis is not good, people yeah. in that community will just not pay attention to that researcher anymore. And so getting the analysis right is much more important. 
what I'm understanding is that there's a lot to lose from 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 being there. Yes, and the gain, in my opinion, is actually not really that much of a gain. I mean, I think Twitter audiences can come and go, and then even if you've got a large Twitter audience, feeding that audience becomes its own burden over time. You could become perhaps captured, audience capture, you know, is a phrase that some people use where you're you actually get driven by what you think your audience wants rather than what you think is important as a researcher based on the work that you're doing. And so if you if you start going down that road, you it's just not something I'm interested in. And I think people should be careful about that. That's really interesting. And I I, I can I spend a lot of time on, on Twitter, maybe a bit more than I should. And but I, I can definitely see the value in that. It, it's a wonderful tool to yeah. use in research as well. So I don't mean to demean Twitter no, 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 or I any form. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because you can you can get some really good information that way. People do share a lot of information in social media in general, but then Twitter especially. And so it can be a wonderful resource. I'll say that I use these resources, including Twitter, deliberately, where I will say, okay, I want to research this, and now I will go. And then sometimes a few hours later, I'll say, okay, how did I end up in this area over here? I'm now going to stop <laughs> and do something you else. You have to, I think. Deliberation to, is my approach. The, the, the reason, and I think Twitter is specifically a really good example, is that, um, and, and maybe we can talk about different types of sources of information as well, Sure. Um, is, is that Twitter can be in some places where some of the information comes from in, in the first place. Yes. We've talked yes. a lot about satellite imagery. And in, in a previous talk that you, you did, you talked about this idea of open cycle or loop. I, I forgot exactly the nomenclature, but closed and open cycles of, of oh, data yes. acquisition. Yes. And so yes. Planet, if you buy an image from Planet, you can pretty much be sure the image hasn't really been tampered That's right. With. That's right. And Twitter is a source of data as well. And you know, someone can post something um, when things are, are going on in, in Ukraine, for example. People are filming what's going on in, in the streets. Um, and there's an entire open source intelligence community that uses those things. But you have to be very careful about that. And so I'm, I'm really curious as well, of, is that part of when you say you, you, you're very rigorous with how you use it, is that part of the things that you're going to go for about like there, there's probably something useful but i have to be very careful about absolutely and this comes back into communication as well uh, but yes i think it's just basic good tradecraft or me- method methodology for doing research to combine multiple forms of information together if you, uh, to to see how it checks out so in the case of um, whether well, actually whether it's a Twitter post or, or a satellite image, if you have one satellite image and you have an observation and you think it's important, you want to see that on other satellite images, and sometimes other other forms of satellite imagery. So maybe an electro optical image from one company, let's say Planet, then another company, Maxar, uh, and Satellogic. Um, because I don't want to leave out any satellite, any EO satellite. No, but your point providers. is, we don't want Multiple just forms. one source that we trust. E- is like we want to even be with to... satellite imagery, you yeah. don't want that. Um, then you, same with the Twitter post. Yes, one image, a ground. Let's say you've got a, a picture, and the picture says, "This is an arms transfer from one country to another," and here's a picture of it. Well, 
Can you see that on a satellite image? Can you geolocate it? So that's the next step. You mm. always want to be, and this is where location can be so important because location becomes that variable that ties the different pieces of information together. Location becomes the variable that connects the Twitter post of a ground photo of an, arm, an alleged arms transfer with a satellite image. If you can put them together, it's location that combines them. That's the thing that anchors it. So that's why in our book, we start with what we call the location mindset, which is, first of all, you should think location is the most important variable, well, one of the most important variables to use in your research. And one of the reasons is that you can use it as an anchor to tie different pieces of information together. And, a, and one that's, I'll say concrete, right. metaphorically. Um, this comes back to communication, because another thing that we talk about in our book is moving from an individual making an observation and then making that observation on multiple forms of information to peer review. Can other people look at the same information and come to the same conclusion? If so, that only strengthens your observation and what you want to say and put out there. If not, then that's important for you to know. And it's actually better to know that. You know, it's all the common search for truth. And so that's why ultimately peer review is so important for any individual analyst. It's that it's like that next step of adding more information, except instead of adding like another satellite image, you're adding another brain, another human to look and say, does this look like this to you? If, if so, why? If not, why not? And then it only makes your work stronger. No matter what the answer is, it only makes your work stronger to do that. I like that you use peer review because it, specifically for open source intelligence, it, I, I've never thought about it as peer review because at least personally, when I think of peer review, it's a group of academics mm -hmm. who are kind of handpicked and it's like you, 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 and you, you're going to check this specific yeah. work and then we trust that. Yeah. But in a lot of the open source, it's anybody can be like, hang on a minute, uh, this thing doesn't add up. So I feel like I, I just want to bring that up because it's, yep. I think it's not that academic peer review. It's more of a crowdsourced peer review version of that, yeah, if, if I, I understand correctly. I think that's a great point. And I, you could, one could put it on a, a spectrum yeah. to say there's, you know, certain types of very restricted peer review where, yes, it is a small group of experts that get access to the data. Um, versus crowdsourcing at the other end, where it's anybody can look at it and then try to make sense of it. And then things in between, where the idea of scientific replication, for example, you've got um, a scientist that makes a discovery about a new particle that they found in their particle accelerator experiments. Well, they may do run the experiment multiple times, see if they get the same result over time, and then say, oh, okay, we're going to publish this. Well, the publish the publication probably goes through an internal peer review process, but then the act of publishing it itself becomes another layer of peer review because then other scientists in their field will try to replicate it. That's the same kind of so so I do mean it in both of those senses. Got it. And you actually go end up going through multiple layers of that over time anyway. Where yes, you'll have an internal review, but then as soon as it becomes public, it's it's then open for people to say yes or no, or and why. It may be more informal and more crowdsourced. I think that's a good term for it. But it can be no less important. For sure. So somebody can still find something of, of interest. I, I just wanted to mention that again, yeah. for that it's not 
in a purely academic yes which is why it's so interesting yeah it, that, totally um so so on on that one of the things i i i heard you talk about as well is that all source has a um uh, I, I forgot the exact name but you you have a basically a group of analysts mm -hmm. um, i think outside the company from from what i understood um like a network of, of analysts yes that 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 work as well i'd love to understand that because that at least the first time I, I i heard about it maybe i'm misunderstanding but it sounds like a bit of a different approach of you have maybe you know outside consultants and i'd love mm -hmm. to understand how that works how that process of working with people who are outside the company who bring in their skill um and you know back to is that open proprietary kind of just understand that a little bit better sure sure yeah great question it is something that's new um, and it's, so the, the company is structured in this way. We have a small group of full-time employees. I'm one of the full-time employees. Sorry, can you tell me just roughly how many people? Uh, yeah, there are four full-time employees. Okay. Okay. Quite small. Yeah. Yeah. Quite small. Uh, and then there's an analyst network of over 30 experts in the field of mostly geospatial analysis, some open source analysis experts, uh, that are all independent contractors. And so that allows us to um, maintain a large group of people who have a lot of expertise without having to pay full 30 full-time salaries to everybody to keep them to keep them in the organization. Um, so we call that our analyst network. And I started on the analyst network myself and then worked up and became a full-time employee. Uh, and the model is, you know, it's sort of like the gig economy or access economy, uh, which is just meant to be, and the way that we use it is it's flexible. So if somebody joins the analyst network or our analyst network, uh, they can accept work or not accept work. And that doesn't affect them being on the network at all. It's they're, If they're interested, they've got the time and they like the compensation, then we can enter into an agreement and do the work. We scope each piece of work for each, depending on the project and depending on the people who are involved. So that means somebody has to say, okay, here's the, here's the goal that the customer wants. Here's how we can get the analyst network to do it. We've got now five pieces that we can divide this into and assign it based on interest and availability and expertise. Uh, so it, it makes, it's, it's really useful for us in a few different ways. One is it keeps our costs down so that we can be more competitive when we're trying to get contracts from companies to hire us. And that's, you know, operating in a space like, like BAE systems or Northrop Grumman. What so is BAE? Um, I don't even remember what the acronym stands for. Please, anybody who works there, don't get mad at me. <laughs> um, but th so these l very large full-time companies that hire people full-time to be analysts. Uh, mostly in the classified setting, actually, um, that they they spend a lot of money on on salaries, and so they have to bring in a lot of money. There's a lot of pressure to do that. So to have a large analyst network allows us to be able to compete with bigger project or for bigger projects, but not have to pay a full time, you know, salary to to that many people, which helps to keep our costs down and allows us to stay open as a business. Um, so that's one way that it helps us. Another way it helps us is that we can find 
really, really good people who don't want to work full time, but do want to keep working in the business, who have a lot of expertise, um, but want that flexibility. And I think more and more people expect that kind of flexibility from their work and look for that kind of flexibility in new opportunities. And so basically, anybody who joins the network can work full time anywhere. And it's up to them to, to manage it and make sure that it's not conflicting with their job. But if, if it's not, they can do whatever they want. So we don't have non-compete agreements, for example, mm. or non-disclosure agreements with the analysts. Like, and we handle all the contracts. You know, we, we bring everything in. We scope everything, meaning we tell them exactly what we want and what, the deadline. And then here's the compensation. And then... And then that's it. So it, it actually makes it a lot easier for the analyst as well. Um, the downside is that it puts a lot of premium on managing. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So it's a really interesting approach. I hadn't understood that it was like that, but that's a that's a really interesting approach to, to solving that kind of problem. If you right? want to join the network, why don't you, you could. <laughs> right. But so if yeah, yeah, if there's anybody listening who wants to to join, they can check on all apply sorts. and yeah, and we have a okay. we have a an application process, but absolutely, yes. And in fact, it actually really, I'll, I'll say this as well, because of that process, we get people with backgrounds that we don't always expect, but that turn out to be really useful. So we've got, it's, all, it's like crowdsourcing for your employees in a way and having like crowdsourcing for somebody that puts a Twitter post out and then having the whole Twitterverse say yes or no to it. Well, that's that's kind of what we get at our company where we've got so many different backgrounds. A company can come to us and say, okay, uh, we want to study satellite orbits. Uh, can you put together a study of satellite orbits for commercial satellite? Uh, this is a total, nobody's come to do this, but no, no, it's just no, an wait, example I, I, I of out of thin air. We have someone on our network who can at least start to address that issue. And if they've got some background in it, uh, I mean, so it's, different than a company that's let's say 20 people you know all full time but if somebody if a company comes to them and says hey do you have can you do this kind of project they might be a little more limited in what they're able to do with it and may have difficulty finding people to fill that role because they have a, a more inflexible hiring approach um, not calling anyone out here just just saying I want to change gears, sure. um, and, I, and I want to go towards the. Uh, so, so we've talked about the, the work that you do here. I want to talk about the other branch of work that you do, which is the the teaching. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the book uh, in a moment, but I'd love to understand that a little bit more. Can you? Um, you said you <clears throat> you alluded to earlier. Um, you teach a course on geospatial intelligence. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Correct. What, what sure. do you teach? Sure. So it's another example of it's a totally open source program, meaning all the all the information that we use is open and not classified. Um, some of it is proprietary. And then the program itself is proprietary in the sense that they want students to pay to, to attend the class, right? But um, but yeah, I work for... And that's at John Hopkins. Yeah, that's at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, it's uh, part of their what they call their advanced academic program. So it's a graduate program based in Washington, D.C. Um, the office is in Washington, D.C., but the program itself is online. It's all remote. And I teach a class there uh, that I was 
hired to create a course on geospatial communication. And the way that I created it was to create a course on geospatial observation, analysis, ending with communication, to make sure that when I teach students how to communicate effectively, that we actually spend some time figuring out how do we make correct observations, how do we think about them correctly, analytically, then how can we communicate in a way that reflects on that whole process. So that means communicating your observation clearly and effectively, like caveats, probable this. Well, why would you do that? Well, if you've gone and you've reviewed, here's how you make an effective observation, it becomes clear by the end, oh, this is why you want to communicate it in a particular way, because I'm actually not sure that's a truck. I think it is, but I'm not sure. So here's how I'll describe it. But you have to go through that observation process to understand and respect how to properly communicate it to someone else. Same with analysis. So it was a, it's a three-stage part of the course that ends in analysis and ends with students doing a large project in the class that's built on work that they've done throughout the semester that starts with observation, goes through analysis, and then ends with a product where we focus on communication techniques, how to build an effective graphic, how to write something effectively, how to present something. So how do you take this work that you've done? You've got a 30-page product project, right? Like a 30-page paper with graphics. Well, you're not going to sit up there and read it to people, right? No, you've got to come up with a way to effectively in like three minutes communicate that. So how do you do that? So we, we talk about that as well. That, that's the point I wanted to linger on a little bit. Like the sure. analysis, I think... We've talked about that. I'd love to talk about how do you teach those things? Because, you know, you can teach how to use QGIS and uh, this is how you scale the image so that it looks nice and the truck pops right. up and things like that. Right. But the communication, like this more soft skill aspect, mm. um, I think sometimes gets left out in those more technical conversations and it seems like it's a big focus of what you're doing. And so do you have maybe examples of how you get students to first realize how important that is and then transfer those skills and those capabilities to them? Yeah, great question. And the way that I structure the class is I build it from the ground up where we start with, how do you make an effective observation? Uh, and that starts the process. Just that alone starts the process of getting students to think about, oh, how, how do I describe this object? Okay, I thought I could just call it a truck, but I'm actually not sure. So I should probably call it a six meter long rectangular object or something like that. Got where it. We go through terms to use to describe an observation um, at different possible levels. So one level would be to name it as a thing in the universe that most people know, truck. But if you're not sure about that, maybe take a step back and say, you know, this is an object. It's at this location here's what I can describe about the object. It's dark toned. It's about six meters long. Um, and it could be a truck. So starting at that level with observations, that's why, that's why I have to start with something like, let's just make an observation first um, and then start getting into how we communicating it, how we communicate it, excuse me. Um, but then there's another trick that I do, which is I get students to make their own observations. So they have to find something 
and then describe it. And that sounds simple. Like, oh, okay, yeah, you just find something. But the point is, I want each individual student to make their own observation given certain parameters. So I'll give them parameters to say, okay, here's an, here's an area. Look through this area. We'll use imagery, but we'll also use geospatial data sometimes as well. And that's a slightly different process. But the end goal is the same. The student should make the insight and then try to communicate that. If you just give a student an object and say, here, now describe it. They're like, who cares? I don't care. The idea is to get the individual invested in the work that's being done so that they then care about how other people are hearing it. If you just give them the work up front and then say, now describe it effectively, it's just like a, it's like a rote writing class or graphics class that might teach you a few things, but it's boring and you're not personally invested in it. So the trick, the real trick is to show students that they can start developing and doing their own research and finding things that they think are really cool that they want to communicate about. If they're invested in it and they think it's important, that starts, that's, that's the most important part of communication that I think most people overlook. Um, other people will think it's important too. That excitement. That excitement. Right, 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 right. And it, it motivates them to try and get it right. If you don't care about something and you're, you describe it to me, it's pretty clear that you don't care about it by the end of it, right? So that's probably the most important part of the class. But it's somebody listening to this might be like, oh, that's easy. Well, okay. You can make your own class then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds to me like specifically for that interpretation and communication, like counterexamples might be interesting i don't know if yeah. you use any of those where you're like oh yeah this is a truck and then at the end you kind of rug pull and be like actually it was a boat yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah and some you know i do so, so, so some of that we've got some of those examples um so that that, that certainly can be uh a, a useful technique i'll i'll do that a little bit in a course i i'm i'm usually pretty careful about how many times I do that because yeah. that can be an effective technique. But if you do it too many times, it becomes a gimmick where students yeah, are yeah. like, he's going to pull out the rug again. <laughs> yeah. That's not a truck after all. I just know yeah. it. Uh, but it is a very important thing. To, and I do have some examples like that. Absolutely. So that's a great one. Another is to give students a model at the beginning of the class to say, not, not like a like a framework, a, a like a way model. to think about something. Yeah. A way to th of think about something or a finished product okay. that they can use as a model or think about potentially as a model for their own work throughout the class. Be like, okay, here's a finished report. And she's like the best one that you can find. And it doesn't really matter, you know, what the source is, but as long as it's really good and you say, well, this is what we're shooting for. This is the goal that we have uh, as researchers. We want to produce something that's excellent like this. Take a look at this. Um, and then use that. I mean, I use it to then structure certain other things. So I'll pick something very deliberately for that reason as to use it as a model at the beginning that's another that's another important part of the class so that's for the teaching and let, let's get onto the on the onto the book sure um, can you let's start describing what the book is about um and we can go on from there sure well the book title is geospatial data information and intelligence and the book is really about how anyone can take geospatial data information and intelligence, and make sense of it. So we start by making, making it clear that there is a process 
for transforming geospatial data into something useful that people want to know about. And it's a process of refining that data into use, more and more useful information. So I think that that's something that most people can relate to. But as we talked about earlier in the talk, there's more and more data coming in all the time. There's not a shortage of data. There's, a, there's really a shortage of insight about the data. Mm. So telling people that, look, realize there's a process for transforming data into something useful. That's first. Second, there's a way to do it. There's a particular mindset. Location is important. Tool set. Here are the tools that you can use to take that data and tra start transforming it, the, the different software, things like that. And skill set. Mindset, tool set, skill set. The skill set is the analytical tradecraft or the analytical methods for taking geospatial data and transforming it. So somebody looks at a satellite image, they can, most people can look at a picture and make some sense of it. But there's a structured process that an analyst will use to rigorously go through the data, make sure they've pulled out everything of possible interest, and then communicated it all effectively to make it clear what it is and what the analyst thinks they know about it and doesn't know. So introducing that as part of the skills in the, in the industry is another part of the book. And that's all that's sort of up at the front. And then the second half of the book is just all tradecraft. Like, here's how you do it. Here's how you make effective observations. We have two chapters on that. Here's how you make effective analysis or conduct effective analysis, two chapters on that. And then here's how you communicate effectively, two chapters on that. And it's sometimes described as soft skills communication. In some ways it is, but there's a structured way of communicating things that is rigorous. And uh, if you follow certain methods, most people can effectively conduct. Most people can do effectively. So that's, that, that's really the book. I mean, the book is about how to take geospatial data and make something interesting that you want to tell other people about effectively. Who do you think it's for? Like, who did you write it for? So we, that's a good question. Um, we have written it for both beginners in the field, so people who are just starting out, uh, and, or, and people who think they might be interested in the field but want to know more. So it really starts at that, at that level. You don't need to have a, any particular background to start reading the book and to start getting into it. But it's also meant for, in the latter half of the book, you know, early and mid-career professionals to remind themselves of different techniques that are out there, remind themselves of how important certain observation techniques can be. So broad area searching, for example. I, mean, I That was a term that I brought up earlier. Well, there's a very specific and structured way of conducting a broad area search. So that's when you have a large image and yep. you're looking at it. And you're looking at the whole image. How do I make sure I'm seeing every, all of the parts of the image? If you zoom in a certain amount, you can't see most of the image. How do you know that you're covering the whole thing? When you're covering it, how do you, in a structured way, record your observations? Mm. How do you know what's important and not important? Then when you record them, what do you say? And what do you record and why? Uh, so there's a structured way. And then you, even before you do all of that, you want to set it up in a particular way too. So you have a certain framework or you have just a certain area that you're interested in, why are you interested in it, making sure that your research goals are clear ahead of time, that kind of thing. Got it. So 
geared towards both the beginner who's interested in the field and the mid-career professional that wants to brush up their skills or just make sure they've got a reference on their desk to say, oh, line of communication analysis. Oh, man, I, you know, I did that five years ago. Am I doing it just the right yeah, way? Yeah, let, yeah. Me, let, me, let me look this up. So, Yeah, that makes sense. And when is it coming out? In about two months. Let's put a date because people are going to listen to this. It's at- going to come out May 15th. But the publisher may move the date. It'll be totally right. out of our but control. Like a, but I mean, May, about May 15th. About yes. May, mid-May. Mid-May. Yes. Um, I'll yeah put a link to that. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. And there's you mentioned something before we, we hit record that I really wanted to come back to. You yeah. were talking about the importance of like staying hands-on, of keeping like staying sharp, like yes. keeping your, your skills sharp. Um, and it seems like there was more where that came from. There's like, much more where that came from. Can we can we talk about that a absolutely, little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. So there's this great article. I actually read it on LinkedIn. I don't normally read my articles on LinkedIn, but I, <laughs> I happened to, and it was a great article uh, that was uh, linked there. Uh, it's called The Maze is in the Mind. Uh, and it was an article that was the title, well, part of the title of the article. And the article was about people at a large company, in this case, Google, who have gotten to the point now where there are so many internal processes within the company that you've got layers and layers of managers who only do things like have meetings with each other most of the time and schedule more meetings with one another and have internal legal processes before a decision is made. The point of the article was to say, over time at a large company, an internal bureaucratic process can be built up that interferes with creativity and innovation and this this author was saying at the end, I recommend that everyone in the company, you know, everyone from a you know, mid-level manager to vice president to CEO, get their hands dirty every once in a while and do real meaningful work. So it depends on what the company is. But at my company, we do analysis as, as a service. That means the reason I brought it up is that that means I want to continue to be able to do analysis effectively myself as well as manage projects that produce analysis products, you know? So, uh, you know, analysis outcomes or results. So, yes, I like managing big projects and making sure that, you know, we're delivering on them with big teams of people that are really smart. That's that's fun. But I also want to do my own analysis, keep my hands dirty, make sure I know how to do these things myself. I'm up on how to do things effectively. And I just like finding new things. And so I want to be able to continue doing that and not just manage other people finding cool things. So there's the there's the want part. Why is it important to stay sharp? Yeah, that's a great question too. And frankly, sometimes I have to convince people that aren't analysts why it's important to continue to allow me let me continue doing analysis. And the reason it's important is because uh, if you're going to manage people effectively doing analysis, you have to know how to do it yourself. I mean, you don't have to. I mean, you could just take their word for it that they're doing it correctly. But there is a process for doing good analysis that if you understand it well, you can more effectively build a good team to do it at a broader level outside of yourself. That's why it's really important. You've got to keep your hand in so that you know, okay, actually, this is exactly how you should catalog 300 observations of a piece of equipment effectively. I've done that 
I know how to do it. And now I know how to pick the right people to do it. I know it's got to be a certain person with certain skills. And I know what we have to do as a team because I've done it. If you don't know how to do those things, it can be very difficult to put together the right people to do it. And then it can be difficult to know what the final outcome should be because you've never seen a final outcome like that. Now, sometimes you get projects like that and that's okay. Like it's a brand new kind of thing. But you really should know something about the process yourself if you're going to effectively manage it. You know, those details really matter for getting the project right. You know, I, I know how to do all the steps in this process. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. The customer is looking for something brand new. But I know the beginning parts of this process really well. So I, I think I know how to put a team together. That, that's where it starts to me. I, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. I Go think for I'm it. on the, you know, I, I, overall, I think I, I, I kind of agree, but I, I, I do like trying to steel man the other case a little bit. Um, that can quickly turn to micromanaging, basically, which is like, oh, you make sure you double check that everything's being done correctly. And so how do you find that fine line? Yeah. Another great question. And where I find that fine line is making a distinction between me doing the analysis versus other people doing it uh, and having a, a just a separate belief that if I've got other people doing work, I need to let them do the work the way that I, you know, I, I'll have certain parameters, but I have to let them do the work themselves if they're going to do it. And why do I think that? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that over time, experience has shown that that's the most effective way to get the most out of people is to not micromanage. But then also as an analyst, I don't like it myself when other people try and tell me exactly how to do something. So I'll, I'll take that with me and say, based on my experience as an analyst and having done it and continuing to do it, sometimes I know that not even the analyst always knows the right way to do something or there may not be a right way to do something. I've got to let them figure it out. And sometimes they can only figure it out during the project when it's live. And that's really scary. But it's also when you can get the best outcomes. And not micromanaging yields better better results as a result of that. Yeah, that makes, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But no, good job steel manning. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. And, you know, I, I think ultimately part of it is really personal for me where it's like, I don't want to just be somebody that watches other people do interesting work. And I'm all I do is manage a spreadsheet with numbers on it for budget. Like that's not what I want to do as an as a as a job. I think that comes back to, you know, full circle back to the the very beginning of that conversation. Yeah, it feels right. like it's also something that you you seem to value. Um and that got you here in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, there's something, sometimes something easy to find in a group of people that's super smart that is doing something in a way that you wouldn't have done it and you're managing them. I mean, that can be a new thing too. But I think that there's a balance. So, Just the same way, I, I think this is a nice place to start rounding it off. Sure. Just the same way, like starting the, the conversation with the same question. I like finishing them with, with the same. I like asking for a, a one book and, and one podcast recommendation. It doesn't have to be anything that that we talked about yeah. um and, and there's a couple reasons why i like asking those first of all these don't really have recommendation algorithms on the internet so a lot of the ways people hear about books and, and podcasts i'm sure you know that about books is is through word of mouth it's through people saying hey i, I read this I, I listened to this cool thing you should too 
And then I think it's quite telling about people as well. So those are two of the reasons. So yeah, if there's maybe one book and, and one podcast that you've listened to maybe recently or not that you think is just interesting, that has made you think, again, does not have to be related to anything that we talked about, um, but you think just people might find interesting. Great. Uh, this is great. It's a, I love it because it puts me a little bit on the spot. Uh, <laughs> and podcasts, I'll start with. And I'll okay. just say one podcast. that. Okay, I'm going to give two of each. Um, and I know I've already break, I'm breaking the rules here a little bit. That's all right. That's um, fine. The first podcast is called The Realignment. Uh, it's uh, a podcast that focuses on political, international relations, so domestic po- politics, international relations, national security topics, the realignment. Uh, and it's just a great podcast that brings on a variety of people, a variety of backgrounds, people at different um, levels of you know U.S. government, U.S. think tanks talking about important issues. Uh, and so that, that's a really good one. I like it because of the balance of the people's backgrounds that they bring on. Um, but it's much more of a politics and national security focus. Uh, the other podcast is called Making Sense. It's by uh, Sam Harris. And that is a much more wide-ranging podcast. And I, I like that mainly because of um, Sam Harris's approach, even keeled, reasonable and rational approach to a wide variety of topics, in my opinion. Um, and that's just great because so many different topics of, of from from all over the place, from neuroscience to artificial intelligence to how to live a good life, philosophical questions, uh, and many things in between. So that that's that's another favorite. In terms of books, uh, they're really there. There are a lot to mention here, um, and I I'll give two. Uh, one is a book called what's well, just I think it's just called Industry. And I, I, I can send you the title if you like, but it's basically a picture. It's a photographer that got really interested in all forms of human industry and just took lots and lots of pictures of beautiful, beautiful photographs of all different kinds of human industry. And it's like, I don't know, 250 pages. It's a large book in terms of dimension. And it's just got all kinds of really interesting, some very gorgeous pictures of everything from a coal mine, if you can believe there's beauty in a coal mine. There, there, there can be um, to you know electricity substations, all kinds of things. It's interesting just from a human industry or human, you know, activity perspective. Wow, I didn't know there were all these forms of industry. I, you know, um, but then it's also a great reference for anybody in the field to use. Uh, anybody in the field of geospatial information to to just have as a background if in case you're running into something like a, a coal mine well what does one look like those those images can be quite important another book is a book by somebody named john lewis and shui li tai uh, from the early 1980s it's called china builds the bomb it's the first history it was by stanford out of stanford university press it's the first major history of China's nuclear weapons program. Um, John Lewis was a Stanford historian. Excellent book of, and quite readable. Uh, there are, I believe, um, references at the back of the book, but it's not a book that's filled with footnotes, and yet it's an academic history. Uh, so it's built on extremely rigorous historical research. That's really foundational for understanding China's nuclear weapons program. Um, but it's quite approachable and, and readable. And it ties in, you know, 
major events in China's modern history in the later part of the 20th century with scientific developments and innovations that Chinese scientists conducted or, you know, developed to to achieve the goal of, you know, producing and then de successfully detonating their first first fission and then fusion weapons uh, in the 20th century. So those are those are the books and podcasts that I would recommend. There are, there are so many others, but but what what are some that you like. Well, let me ask you. I mean, sure. I'm not asking yeah. you the right question. No, 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 go ahead. I'm going to flip the, the table. Well. I like it. <laughs> G give me a podcast that you listen to. Um, sure. And, and a one, at least a one book. You can break the rules and give more yeah, than sure. one. Yeah, sure. No, no. I'll, I'll stick to the rules. I, I have to, and I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, but I, and you know, this is probably makes sense, um, but I like these really long conversations. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've listened to a little bit of Sam Harris. Um, and I have to, you know, Lex Friedman, Joe Rogan are, they're very, you know, sometimes controversial, but I have, I, I, I've learned a lot from the, the, the approach of just asking questions and, and staying calm in the process. And so those, they're kind of household names at yeah, this point, yeah. but I would. Same. Like, I'll look at Lex Friedman. I and I've listened to some Joe Rogan. I agree. I, I I haven't Lex Friedman, but Joe Rogan. I totally agree with what you just said. The the just almost deliberate but calmly yeah. deliberate approach to just question after question after question. And I just urge people to to like. I, I'm I'm slowly discovering that you know conversation is nearly an, an art form, and there's you can study it, and and there's a lot. And I think they're they're really good at it, and they keep studying it. Yeah. Um, this is probably not. Uh, what everybody uh, would agree with, but I think one of one of my favorite conversations of the past year is um, Alex Friedman had uh, Kanye West on. Oh, interesting! At the height of after the, the whole controversy, or right yeah, the, right in the middle, yeah, right okay. in the middle of okay. it. It's a gut wrenching conversation, mm. but it's it's a masterclass in how to have a conversation with someone who's at the height of being canceled, yeah. basically. Um, and it's not about agreeing with them or not. And it's about having empathy for the person, but also the the, the people they're talking about. Um, it's a really hard conversation, but I'm, I'm very thankful and grateful that these conversations do exist out in the world. And I see those in the, I know, you know, because I do these, I have a bit of a different answer, but it, it's pushes me to try to do a better job. Yeah. And so that's why I'd, I'd recommend those. I think conversation is the you know bedrock of pretty much everything we do as humans. Um, so that's for the podcast. And for the books, um, I've... So I, I speak French. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm French. Um, and there's a book that um, I don't even know if it has an English translation. So this might not be useful for anybody. Um, but there's a, a French science fiction author. Um, it's called... Uh, Alain Damasio, and he writes, he puts a book out maybe every five years, something like that. And they're like big, thick books. He's written like four, I think. And they're some of the best science fiction I've ever read. Really? And he's, I, I don't understand why he's not like Isaac Isimov, for yeah, example, right, like right. known at that level. And he's, it's recent work. So it, I think one of the, my favorite books from him is the the Horde of Counterwind in English. And that came out in like 2014. So it's, it's quite recent work, but it's amazing. It's It uses the French language in like, there's moments where people battle with like 
poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's wonderful. Well, that's why I was going to ask you, is it translated? But then I thought before I asked that question, so much can be lost in a translation. And so I think you're starting to address I, that. I know there are some really good translators out there. I can't even imagine what that must look like. Yeah. But there's little details in the book. Is if you open it, it's the page count goes down. It doesn't go. Oh, up. interesting. It doesn't yeah, start yeah, at one, yeah. two, three. And the yeah. story is about people who walk upwind. And so there's this oh, whole sense of direction yeah. in the in the book. It's well, that's it's really great. that's interesting. It's and the ways in which people communicate things like direction in text, but to get people to think exactly spatially as yeah. they're reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we actually do it. I think in conversation more much more than we realize um in terms of up or if, exactly. if we're talking say well up at this level but down at this level i mean we're already talking about dimension and scale in doing something like that i think chinese is a great example of mm. that if you open up a book in in chinese i think it looks beautiful yeah yeah um but you read it completely differently than than starting on the top left and going absolutely down. so do you, you mean so to clarify, you mean a, a Chinese book where the text is written in the more, well, in a particular style where it's up, which yeah. vertically arranged. And then yes. right to left. Yes. Um, which I think just it is, I, yep. I like this because it throws that convention that we have that a book starts, you know, you you have your book and you open it up from, from the left, yep. from the right to the left. And then you read left to right and the pages go in a certain direction and just... I think, you know, mangas are a little bit like that as mm -hmm, well, but mm -hmm. you're still reading the same. Just looking, even if you don't understand, picking up a, a, a book that's written in Mandarin like this is a really interesting experience. So in terms of interesting experience in literature, Nabokov is another writer. Well, I mean, first of all, he's best known for the work Lolita, but okay, his subsequent books are way more experimental even than that. And that book at the time was... Like, yeah. very controversial but reading that book it's filled with multiple levels of language in, including a, a good deal of french and french expressions for certain topics that aren't translated i've heard um, about that and uh, purposely so this is like there's one word to express what i'm trying to say and it's just in this one language and here it is and if you don't know it that's that doesn't you know that that's on it, it doesn't matter you know the, the point of the book is not to cater to any individual reader. So anyway, that, it's another example of, um, you know, writing that integrates a lot of different perspectives and takes different approaches. Anyway, that, that's what it made me think of. No, no I, well, that's fascinating. I, I would love to read the author, but I don't read French. I so I don't know if it, I think, I feel like it should be, it's the kind of thing that should get a movie even. Yeah, yeah. They'd probably ruin it, but whatever. Um, there, actually, there's like one last question that I, I failed to, uh, bring up earlier, but I, I did want to, it's been on the back of my mind ever since I, sure. I came across the work is, um, and this is a bit of a way out there is like the, the, we've talked about like China nuclear weapons, like it's a bit of a sensitive topic. Mm. Um, has there been any repercussions of talking about openly like, Hey, uh, there's this tunnel that China mm. is building for its nuclear testing. Like, I, I just want to address yeah briefly like because again we're not talking it's not about like just any topic it's these highly sensitive topics and i just want to the maze is in the mind yeah, yeah, yeah and people some people really don't want other people to talk about that so i'll start so it's kind of an outside question i'll start with an outside answer kind of an outside answer let's do it uh there was an article don't know the author or the title i'm just going to give the thesis of it 
and if you're interested, I can provide that later mm-hmm. um, as supplemental notes. But there was a, a really interesting article. It was about somebody who's researching Tibet and the surveillance, the Chinese government's surveillance efforts in the province of their province of Tibet. And the thesis of the article was that some of the most effective surveillance that can be conducted is surveillance that gets adopted by an individual uh, where they start surveilling themselves because they're afraid of what the government might be doing or might be looking at. And so it's this both, I think, on purpose and sometimes by accident result, unintended consequence of government surveillance is that it can implant this mode of of thinking about the world where you're starting to be afraid of what's happening. You're starting to surveil yourself. And you, in fact, you are. You're like, you're looking at, what am I saying? Is this right? Is this not right? And so I, I think about that sometimes in thinking about these topics. And uh, I'll, I'll say that, yeah, I, I think some of the biggest consequences are ways in which I've thought about how I'm, I may and probably have been surveilled and targeted by the Chinese state for things that I've said publicly about, the, about their nuclear weapons program. Um, but I will say also that there's a strong interest in uh, the human community for having transparency about uh, topics such as nuclear weapons, national strategic weapons programs. So it doesn't have to be just nuclear weapons. It could be any kind of any weapon of mass destruction. It could be uh, the Soviet biological weapons program. A huge book came out on that, I think, 2012 by Harvard University Press. Uh, very deep and rich history of the Soviet biological uh, weapons program that was secret until the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, and by 1991, information started coming out that there was a massive program that, uh, I mean, I think some people knew about, <laughs> some governments might have known about and figured out, but that most of the world did not know about that actually created a lot of very dangerous weapons. Well, nuclear weapons are also quite dangerous. And the more that the public understands about how they're made, what how they're dangerous, why we should be paying attention to them, I think the better. I think it's better to be paying attention to this than not paying attention to it. Um, it, To me, it's more about public safety, public living, living a life where the public doesn't have to be afraid that there could be a nuclear war. And uh, things like nuclear testing that I'm focusing on a little bit with China in the last few years, just looking at it and trying to understand more about it in an open source setting outside of government, my own research capacity. Um, testing is an integral part of, of maintaining and expanding nuclear weapons arsenals. And so understanding what's happening with testing will give you a sense of what a country is doing with its nuclear program. And if it's expanding it, the world should know. Uh, and so the world is knowing more about it. Um, nuclear weapons kind of went away from the public consciousness, I think, at the end of the Cold War. But they were always there and they're coming back now in a big way. And people should know more about them. Uh, ultimately, for transparency, more knowledge is better than less. More knowledge can reduce the potential for accident and put, reduce maybe the potential for policymakers to make a decision about using nuclear weapons. Um, that's the idea, anyway. Thanks for your time. This Thank you. Great. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, same for me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's a wonderful opportunity. I. I mean, and it's, I love the way that you've approached this. You're clearly a student of doing this kind of conversation 
the best you can and it, it comes out quite clearly so thank you for doing that thanks i really appreciate yeah. it um i'll we'll, we'll put links to most of the things we talked about um if there's things that you can send me that would be great yeah great um, awesome awesome thank you Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you found it valuable, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. I want to keep the ad load as minimal as I can, and I want to do more of these conversations in person. I want to spend more time researching them and producing them as best as I can. If this sounds something you'd like to be a part of and contribute to, please consider going to Patreon and supporting this work there. That's the best way you can help me make more of these episodes. I'll have a link in the show notes explaining a little bit more about what I want to do for the future of the podcast, and I'd love to do so with your support. Either way, thank you so much for your time, for listening all the way here, and I hope to see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.